when I looked at the sectors and I saw technology weak, staples strong, perfect, that supports my argument. I was fundamental behavioral mistake, which was confirmation bias. I decided I was bearish, and then I just tried to gather evidence to support that call. I was looking for anything to kind of back this up. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, Da, 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 da. You've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest David Keller. David, are you ready to rock? Ready to rock, my friend. Absolutely. Yes. And David is coming from right near the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let me tell the audience a little bit about you. David is president and chief strategist at Sierra Alpha Research a boutique investment research firm focused on managing risks through market awareness. Hmm, that's pretty important. <laughs> he is past president of the Chartered Market Technician Association and most recently served as a subject matter expert for behavioral finance. David was formerly a managing director of research at Fidelity Investments in Boston, as well as a technical analysis specialist for Bloomberg in New York. You can follow his thinking at marketmisbehavior.com, where he explores the relationship between behavioral psychology and the financial market. David is also a featured contributor for stockcharts.com, where he authors a blog called The Mindful Investor. David, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a pleasure to, to meet you virtually and talk to you from Cleveland, Ohio, the home of rock and roll. So thanks for the intro. You know, the only, only thing I would add in terms of my introduction is this, as a technical analysis specialist, a technical analyst, and a, a specialty of mine is in just investor behavior, investor psychology. So we're all about looking for patterns in stock prices, in commodity prices and assets, and, and all about patterns and cycles. So, you know, my career history started just after the March 2000 S&P high. So I started at Bloomberg in New York right before the beginning of that cyclical bear market. I then moved to Fidelity in mid-2008, just before that secular cyclical uh, bear market there. And then I left Fidelity end of 2016, started my own firm about a year and three months ago. So I don't want to say that that guarantees we're in a cyclical bear market, but so far I've been two for two on uh, job changes just before market correction. So take it for what it's worth. <laughs> and it's uh, interesting that I grew up my whole life as an analyst was, I was fundamental fundamentals and I didn't pay much attention to technicals. And then what sure. I realize now is that it is so critical, particularly in emerging markets where there's a lot more volatility than in the West, let's say. As I say now, I am looking for anything that can help me get an edge in stock selection and market timing. So eager sure. to, to learn from you. So great. Absolutely. It's funny. And it's funny. I've spent a lot of time working with fundamental analysts or portfolio managers, investors that are fundamentally oriented. And when they're not familiar with my toolkit, I always ask them, all right, have you ever had a stock or a company that good story, good management, good catalyst for growth, good earnings, perfect opportunity, you buy it, and then the stock price goes down. <laughs> and of course, everyone has had one of those experiences. And so what we do is talk about a, a momentum or a trend following based toolkit that basically just keeps you in stocks that are working and keeps you out of assets that aren't working. And in general, 
over the long term, that's been uh, that's been a, a trick that works. But combining them in a meaningful way, I've always found to be the most effective. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Thank you for that. And let me say, I, I was hesitant to say thank you for inviting me on because you have to own up to a horrible investment call that you oh, made. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's one of my favorite meetings at my previous firm. We had, a, we had a worst call meeting and every six months we'd all get in a room and you had to bring in the worst call that you made. And it was just one of the best uses of our time. Number one, because no one wanted to come in and, and share some bonehead mistake that was so obvious. So you really tried to up your game, but then it was good to learn from everyone else. You, and you learned how easily you can, you know, overlook uh, information and, and, and just not have the right, right evidence. So I will say thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm happy to share, happy to share. And, and sadly, I had many choices to choose from in terms of what would be my worst ever. But, you know, so for me, the circumstances, I'll, I'll take you back to, uh, as I mentioned, I, I went from New York up to Boston in mid-2008. I joined Fidelity Investments. And so my first six to 12 months on the job were very frustrating from a market point of view. If you know your uh, equity market history, you know, the market topped out in late 2007. A lot of stocks actually topped out in early 2007. And then 2008 started a little weaker and then it capitulated selling off into the fall. And then we finally bottomed out at the beginning of 2009. March, April, May was super confusing. We had tons of volatility at the lows. And then what happened through 2010, 2011, 2012 is we just started to recover. And we had this consistent, you know, with plenty of surprises along the way, but overall the, you know, stocks in general were starting to work. The market was recovering more and more. People could kind of put the 2009 low behind them. And so the circumstance I'll share with you is basically uh, mid-2013 which is when I had a completely wrong take on the markets. And, and essentially, I turned bearish on, on U.S. stocks uh, in mid-2013, which if you know your subsequent history, that was not the time to be bearish because the, the next couple of years were, were incredibly strong, uh, really across the board and, and especially in the U.S. The kicker for me leading up to it was I was very focused on the 2000, the March of 2000 high, which the S&P was just about right about 1550 or so. And then in 2007, uh, beginning and then late, we got right about to that same exact level. So when the market once again approached those levels, that was the beginning of, of the wrong call for me, was expecting a repeated pattern when, you know, if I looked at all the evidence, it not necessarily would have supported that. And how did that impact you professionally? I mean, that's, it's a tough one when you're going out pretty strong and the market's going against you. How did yeah. that feel? And how did you handle that as you were, you know, trying to make your case? So it's a, it's a fair question. And I think, you know, I learned a ton from, from that experience. Um, you know, number, I mean, as an analyst and as a professional researcher, you know, your, your job is to have an opinion. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why we fall into a lot of behavioral uh, challenges or, or poor decision making as analysts is because you are, you know, programmed to, you know, pound the table and put your foot down and insist that you have the right answer. When, you know, to be completely fair, probably almost half the time you do not have the right answer. And the market's a very humbling uh, report card for your calls. So I, I learned very quickly that, you know, it is important to have an opinion, but I think having the humility and having the intellectual honesty of, you know, understanding when your call is not working out and then being open and clear on, what evidence is causing you to change your mind? That is probably the most powerful lesson that I learned from that, uh, from that period. And, and as I go through some of the more details of the, 
of the the evolution of my bad call. I think that's probably what was one of my biggest takeaways, which is okay. having the honesty and having the 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 courage to admit that was wrong. And now here's what I need to do differently. Okay. And I want to go through that kind of step by step, like what are the the learnings from it? But I want to ask you another question about it. And sure. just because I, th- I believe that, you know, what you're sharing is common amongst all <laughs> financial professionals for sure. And many individuals where you get convinced about an argument and some, you know, sometimes we're right and sometimes we're wrong. So I want to, I just would like you to explain kind of when was the point where you started to, to, to change that view? Like, what did it take, you know, to change that? And, and, and then the next question, of course, is what did you learn from that, from this experience, kind of one, two, three? Sure. So I would say, you know, when I recognized, I, I was very happy to come out strong. And it was, it was definitely a contrarian idea to be, you know, to be bearish at that point, because stocks in general were, you know, were pretty strong. And, and, and the US market looked very good. And it was, again, at all-time highs almost. Um, and, and I realized that I'd gotten my message across when the head of the trading desk at the time called me Dr. Doom to a group of people. And that, sadly, that nickname stuck for just a little while before I was able to change my mind about things. But, you know, that was when I realized, okay, good, good news is I've made an impact with my call. I've pounded the table, but now I am, you know, I am, I am uh, together. This call is mine now and I have to own it. Um, you know, so, so what happened? I, you know, I think, you know, for me, it wasn't just the market being at new highs. I also looked at, you know, I measure price momentum a lot of different ways. And one of the common ways that technical analysts measure price momentum is with a, an indicator called RSI, which is the relative strength index, which is just simply saying, you know, when something goes up, how much does it tend to go? When it goes down, how much does it tend to go? And it's just a ratio of the average up move versus the average down move. And what you're looking for is when a market moves to extremes. And it's one of the reasons, you know, fast forwarding to today, why a lot of analysts are turning negative on the U.S. markets is because, you know, a lot of stocks are overbought. The market itself is, is right at the overbought level. So it's, it's a meaningful thing and a lot of institutions will pay attention to it. So that was another piece of evidence that kind of told me, you know, we, we've gone up a lot. We've probably gone up too much. I need to be defensive. And then the third thing was looking at the sector level. I remember in particular, technology stocks were underperforming. And so this is a group that I would expect to do well in a bull phase. It was not doing well anymore. And staples, on the other hand, were doing pretty well. And I'm thinking that kind of supports that. So what I realized there and what I realized from that sector perspective, that's my first answer to your question of when did I know I was wrong? When I realized that when I looked at the sectors and I saw technology weak, staples strong, perfect, that supports my argument. I was fundamental behavioral mistake, which was confirmation bias. I decided I was bearish and then I just tried to gather evidence to support that call. I was looking for anything to kind of back this up. And as the market continued a little higher, I doubled down in the worst way and, you know, was just trying to keep supporting it with things, you know, and, and you know, so that was one thing. I would also say that, you know, looking at individual stocks, and I, I learned a lot during this period about the value of not just looking at the market. And even if you're thinking about asset allocation, it's not good enough to just look at equities or look at global equities or emerging markets as a bundle and just make an overall decision based on only on that. Once you look at the country level or look at the sector level or look at the group and stock level, you start to see movements and, and themes that can kind of uh, help understand, you know, sort of the second level below just an overall market call. And so for me, I learned a lot about how I want to qualify what I'm seeing 
from the top down by also doing a lot of good bottom-up work. And a lot of the screening and detail work I do now was came out of that, this period for sure. It's interesting. Um, before we started the podcast, we were just talking about your business. And I like, you know, one of the things you say is your firm is focused on managing risk through market awareness. And sure. what you're describing is, you know, knowledge of that has been forged in the fire. Of <laughs> and that's right? the reason why I oftentimes think that people who have been through these things have a, just a much better way of looking at it. And I think back to when I started as an analyst and I faced the 1997 crisis in Asia. I didn't have a clue. I mean, I was well-educated. I understood finance. I read everything I could. I was, a, you know, I was a few years, five years or so into my career as an analyst and I didn't see it coming. And there were some people that did see it coming. And I have to say that as long as you are keeping your, your learning, as long as you're learning, then eventually you build up enough experience that you, you really do learn those things. So let's just try to knock off the, the step. Like, what did you learn from this experience? Number one, two, three. Yeah, good question. So I, you know, the first thing I learned was, you know, when to admit that your thesis is not working and, you know, be, have the courage to change your perspective. And I'll share a quote from a mentor of mine who said, it's, it's okay to be wrong, but it's not okay to stay wrong. And that's something that, you know, one of the many things I've, you know, taped on my, my monitors over, over the years to just remind myself to stay humble. And you're not, you are not married to your call. You are, you know, making a, you know, an informed decision based on what you think the probabilities tell you, which means you, you have the equal opportunity to, to change that when the evidence supports it. And so whenever, any time, and, and now I, you know, I'm spent a lot of time sharing my thoughts and sharing a perspective on, on where I think things are headed. And so I always thinking of that in terms of, you know, this is my current perspective. And now I'm going to keep paying attention. I'm going to have that market awareness that that you shared, you know, that you, that you mentioned, just to understand when things are, are changing, when, when the, the, the world has changed under your feet enough to do that. And, and as a quick aside, the name of my firm, Sierra Alpha Research, actually comes from flight training, and they teach you to situational awareness, which is when you're flying an airplane, you have to have an awareness of what's going on outside of the airplane, and that's how you don't fly into a mountain or another plane or the ground or something that would really, you know, give you a pretty bad day. And so, you know, a big part of my process now is having a situational awareness for the markets or market awareness and really understanding, you know, what, what I'm seeing around me. So the first thing is just, you know, it's, it's not okay to stay wrong. You, you have to be able to change your mind. Uh, the second thing I would say is I learned a lot about the value of trend following during that period. So anytime the market has approached or a, a stock has gone to new highs, somewhere in my mind, I start to question it because I think as a contrarian, I think, okay, it's gone up enough. We probably need to come lower. But if you look, a lot of things that have gone on, you know, anything that's gone up 1000% started by going up 100% and then 200%, you know, it, things will go up and to the right a lot further than you, you can ever imagine. And so I've learned that when the market is strong, you really want to switch into more of a trend following mentality and stick with things that are working, avoid things that are not working, and just look for signals that the trend has reversed. So for me, I developed a lot of trend following models, you know, sort of around this period and, and definitely after to make sure that I was staying with what was working in a, in a stronger market. And then the third thing I would say was really trying to go second level and trying to gather evidence behind a call. So don't just start with, I think the market or I think this position is doing X, Y, Z, it's going below that and seeing what evidence you can gather to kind of support or not support that. And an example with the equity call in 2013 was looking at something like market breadth. Excuse me. So if you look at 
you know, something like the advancers decliners, which is a measure of how many stocks are going up, how many stocks are going down, that remained strong through much of 2013. It kind of hit a peak, but it never really came down that much. And in the end, it went up as the market uh, continued higher. And so recognizing that stocks were overall, the average stock was still holding up okay, was an important signal that I reminded myself and I need to pay attention to. Well, let me summarize what I take away from it. The first thing is, I was just, I wrote down, you will eventually be wrong. <laughs> and sadly, not eventually sometimes. Very quickly, you can be yeah. wrong in, in a but lot I mean, of ways. Right? The point being that, you know, enjoy the moment when you're right, but you will eventually be wrong. Yeah, and and there's a humility to investing that I think, you know, when I've, I've coached a lot of novice investors, people right out of school, and these are people that are used to getting good grades, doing well in sports, you know, having a lot of success. And then you're entering an industry where you're going to be wrong a lot. And, and people are not used to being wrong this much. And, you know, someone like Peter Lynch always told us that, it, you know, it's, it's not about being right all the time. It, it's not, not staying wrong. It's recognizing when you're not right. And, and that's, that's really the game. So, yep. Uh, yep. so absolutely, the humility to recognize that you will be wrong. The other thing I take away is kind of hold your contrarian instincts sometimes that momentum can push through harder and so there are times that I've looked at charts and I've looked at stocks and I just think, oh, this has got to turn based upon what? You right. know? <laughs> and so hold your contrarian instincts. And then the last thing is uh, the idea of confirmation bias. And, you know, mm. we tend to try to look for, as you mentioned, information that supports our view, particularly when we're trying to make impactful view in our firm or in our life that we're trying to, you know, be contrarian if we can. And so, yes, we want to try to collect as much information as we can to confirm our view. And that's natural. But the point is, I liked your second level. I think maybe a good way to think of it is it goes second level looking for contrarian view, you know, views that are contrary to yours. That's actually a really good point. And I didn't mention that, but that that's, uh, you know, another meeting that we used to do as a group, we call it the devil's advocate meeting. Yeah. And so someone just has to take the other side of it. You know, when Apple is just going up and it, it's working and it, there just doesn't seem to be a reason why it should ever go down. Someone has to put together a bearish investment thesis. You know, a lot of times we don't agree with it, but it just makes you think about what the other side, because it could certainly go down, but thinking about what, you know, what chain of events could cause that to happen a lot of times uncovers weaknesses in your initial thesis that you wouldn't have found otherwise. Right. And highlights also something that I've kind of come up with is um, based upon all of my interviews and the people I've talked to and the submissions of stories, I've kind of thought about investing from a six step perspective. The first step is find your investment idea. The second step is research the return. The third step is assess the risk. The fourth step is create an investment plan of what you're going to do. And then the fifth step is execute that plan. I do have stories of people who had a great investment idea and they didn't execute it and they missed a huge opportunity. And then number six is, of course, monitor the plan and the progress of that relative to the plan. But the key thing is that I think that the separation of research on return and research on risk is critical. And part of the devil, devil's advocate is, like, is also part of that. But the, when you find an idea, it just gets really exciting when you look at the return. So you take all those endorphins and all the, you know, all the different things that are popping in your brain. And then you try to look at, okay, yeah, but the risks, yeah, there's not that many risks versus, right. okay, take my Dr. Jekyll hide, you know, uh, hat off. Now put my <laughs> you know, Mr. Hyde hat on and now I got to research the risk. So that's one that's thing right. that I would highly recommend for listeners is to try to separate that before you make 
your investment. Yeah, so, absolutely. Okay, based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, let's bring it down to one action you'd recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate. Really, really good question. And I, you know, as you can tell, as I was talking about, I learned a lot from this and, and from many other bad calls. I, you know, the one, I, I would say the main thing I would suggest is always have an exit plan. And again, going, going back to, you know, to flight training. So I'm a, a student pilot going for my private pilot's uh, qualification. And so one thing I learned is any flight plan you have, any flying you're doing, you're always looking for what you're going to do in a case of an emergency. So you know, okay, there's an airport, there's a highway, there's a golf course. Like you always have something. And then in the case something happens, you just, you execute that side plan. One thing I did immediately after that is every time I have a call or make a recommendation or put a trade on, I always say, and if X, Y, Z happens, then I'm wrong and I need to change it. So it's always having a stop to a long position or a short position. It's always having a price level or a movement or a, an event, some signal that will cause you to reevaluate your position. No matter what else you see, no matter what else is going on around you, you lay it out right at the beginning. And then, you know, the key is obviously sticking with that, having the conviction to actually doing it. The moment it triggers, you just take the action and don't think again. Beautiful. My father worked his whole career for DuPont and uh, he was a very safe driver and they had a lot of driver safety <laughs> training. And he always told me, always leave an out. You know, leave a That's space exactly right. in front, behind, on the side, always <laughs> leave an out. And so yep. I like this, always have an exit plan. So last question, yep. what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Ooh, great question. I have a lot. I mean, I just launched my research firm about a year and three, four months ago or so. So I have a lot going on. But, you know, to be honest with you, two things. So stockcharts.com, where I write on a column called The Mindful Investor, I'm actually going to be launching a TV show for their online network in the next couple months. So that's probably the, the main next goal. And then, uh, and then hopefully a podcast of my own down the road. And hopefully I'll, I'll have you on to share, share some wisdom for my listeners as well. Amen. Well, that sounds like you're going to have yourself a busy 12 months, I'd say. <laughs> that sounds like it. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. Now, as we wrap up, David, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, that was very therapeutic to finally admit my weaknesses to everyone. But no, thanks so much. This is a, I, I love what you're doing with the podcast. It's a pleasure to be a part of it. So thank you. Very happy to have you on from very close to where I grew up, little old Hudson, Ohio, a one hour <laughs> drive from where you are, I think. And uh, that's right. So fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.